to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resonant Advisor. This week's exchange is with Matt Dryhurst. By his own admission, he's probably best known as Holly Hernan's key collaborator and husband. But behind the scenes, he's one of the few people asking tough questions about the future of music and culture. He operates at a crossroads between music, tech, art, philosophy and activism, and it's difficult to fit him in a neat box. But a dedication to a DIY independent ethos is the glue that holds it all together, whether it's in building self-hosting publishing platforms like Saga, or advising Resonate, a collectively owned streaming platform. I spoke to Dryhurst a few weeks ago about the key issues facing the music industry and culture at large, and how he and Hernan's music has been shaped by the bigger picture. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Matt Dryhurst is up next. trying to prepare for this interview you know there's no easy Matt Dryhurst bio which uh, sums up everything that you do there's a lot of gaps in the simple chronology of things um I was just wondering if that's if that's by design perhaps a little bit it's like a style if only for the fact that I'm in a particularly privileged and unusual position where I'm not really trying to sell anything. You know, the bio's a bit strange because the the boring part of it is that I had a desk job for almost 10 years out of college. And when you're in a kind of more arts context, people don't like to talk about that, you know. In music, maybe 
they're more open to it in the field of art it banishes you as like a a prole <laughs> and so while actually my having many different day jobs in many different fields and very many different cities actually contributes a lot to what i do and a lot of the context of how i approach things you know people don't need to know that i worked at craigslist for a few years in san francisco you know well i, I saw that one. Oh, okay you saw that. all right but, but you know it's it's like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna roll up to like a a panel on subcultures and talk but it, it makes a lot of sense that i did and i guess the one thread throughout all of it that i'm still probably a bit too loud about is i definitely come from a pretty diehard independent background that's like every job i've had has has been on the lower end of the pay scale because it's been working for non-profits or small companies or record labels that that i believed in um, and i've been very fortunate to to keep doing that yeah so but ultimately i mean over time maybe it'll start to make more sense but at the moment i'm just i'm not trying to sell anything really you know i've, I've got the stuff that i do and the stuff i get paid for but i i have a hard time weaving together some kind of coherent narrative around what i do but i end up doing a lot of it somehow so yeah because i guess it touches on the art world the tech world music world philosophy politics sustainability etc cetera, etc cetera. but um i think one of the early things that i was interested in you mentioned um working for an independent label and I noticed that you said you worked for Crass's record label. That was like the first yeah. job you had out of college. Yeah, for sure. That would um, have been a pretty interesting first touch with the music industry. <laughs> totally. I mean, and, and to be fair, you know, the Crass element could be overblown in the sense that Crass were very involved in the in the institution of Southern Records, which was my first job out of college. And they and John Loder worked on some of the early prototypes of John Loder, who's, who founded Southern, and also SRD, which is still going. It was one of the big dance music distribution labels, distribution company, sorry. They did a lot of work in establishing what we understand to be in the independent music industry. Similarly, John Loder worked with Fugazi in establishing Discord as a proper, legit label that shipped its records overseas through Southern to London. You know, so it was this this crazy history and also a bit of a crash course in both understanding that history, understanding the politics behind it, and understanding the challenges behind it. Because, you know, normally, if you're, I think I was 18 when I started that job, you go into a job and you're like, you have your place. And Southern was very much a, you know, I think we did have job titles, but it was like, okay, there's a band sleeping at your apartment tonight, and then you're going to the show, and then you're doing this, and now you're running this press campaign, and now you're doing the label management. And it was very much this kind of pirate ship and a crash course in like the good things and the bad things of that but also like a nice little time capsule you know because i don't think that exists in quite the same way anymore and so still exists in some capacity but i haven't i haven't honestly checked in on it for years but definitely definitely very interesting for me as a, as a teenager to you know go into a scenario where in a job they're asking you about your ideology which is good i, I guess I, I parrot that kind of sentiment now to my students and in other things that i do so was there a before and after of the ideology of the young Matt Dryhurst at that time? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I've always been super lefty to probably an annoying degree. At the time, I think I was going through, you know, I'd always been interested in music. I'd moved to London and I was broke and confused because I wasn't very hip, you know. And I was like really into metal at the time and trying to figure out. Electronic music was a complete mystery to me. I mean, I had like a Prodigy record, but it was not anything I was interested in. I thought I honestly thought it was really tedious and annoying at the time. It was something that, you know, fancy people got were into in my ridiculously uh, blinkered understanding of it. I think it did establish a sense of pride and identity that I was looking for at the time. And I do cling to that a little bit. And it's been easy. And to make the comparison with something like Craigslist too, you know, again, 
I have positive negative things to say about Craigslist, but there was a real sense of, you know, this kind of pirate ship mentality of it being a small group of people trying to accomplish very big things, there being ideological reasons to not grow or not kind of compromise in business decisions and other things. And, and it's nice to be in environments where to, where you see that work out and you see it not work out and you can kind of calibrate in accordance with that. You know, so so I do feel a degree of confidence when I talk about independent ideas that I have at least some experience to, to justify my interest in it without just kind of shooting from, you know, from a place of, of ignorance. Was your work with Grey Area, was that around the same time as Craigslist? Uh, shortly after, yeah. So, And, and could you de- describe what Grey Area is for the uninitiated? Totally, yeah. So I'm married to a musician, Holly, that I collaborate with a lot. That's the context of, you know, probably how most people know who I am. But at the time, Holly was studying in the Bay Area and I got a job at Craigslist because you basically had to work in tech in the Bay Area at the time. It was like post-2008. And Grey Area is an organization. So Grey Area is an art and technology nonprofit that has been established. I can't remember exactly where, but it's been around for quite a while. Started by this woman, Josette. And we'd been involved with Grey Area over the years, Holly and I, kind of, you know, curating talks, just putting on little events in and around the space because they were generous in opening up their space. And we do strange things like invite in writers on technology who we're particularly interested in and then have people perform afterwards. So try and, you know, which in context makes a lot of sense why we do the kind of things we do now. And yeah, a job came up where they were looking for a director of programming, which is confusing for a lot of people because it doesn't mean director of writing code. It means literally just programming the space. And I just thought it was it was really interesting. And, and I've been doing a lot of work in San Francisco at the time, trying to somehow reconcile the tensions in the city between the technology community and the arts community. You know, I, I socialized in both of those worlds and there were a lot of bad things said in either direction. And so I kind of organically, with a guy called Barry Through, started running these evenings where we would try and basically get the most powerful people in tech we could in a room with noise kids or kids who felt people in the arts who felt somehow that they were being displaced and just as a means to try and reconcile that and it was really successful and so I attempted to move a lot of those ideas through to gray area the other side to it is that gray area has successfully run code workshops which in my time there we turned into a, a full curriculum so really entry level, you know, $20 an hour lessons with people from the tech industry who were looking somehow to get experience teaching. And so a lot of my time actually was spent there on education. And that's something that, um, you know, I find really exciting. And I think they do a superb job of, but they do all kinds of things. They have a festival now called Gray Area Festival that's, you know, started since since I'd left. And, you know, they're, they're a special kind of, again, independent nonprofit satellite in the middle of in the middle of the mission, which is kind of like grand zero for gentrification in San Francisco. And I think they do good work, you know. I asked because you recently spoke on a panel to do with similar dynamics between the tech world and the art world in Berlin, specifically centered on a space called Postost, which was a, an artist studio in the east of Berlin, which Factory, a large startup incubator, acquired the space for. And subsequently, the artists no longer use that space. You were on on this panel talking about this situation. How did your experience of working with Grey Area in San Francisco translate or not translate into this very specific Berlin situation? I think it did. In the context of that particular panel, it was difficult because there were tons of people with different experience on the panel and the conversation moved a lot toward like urban planning, which isn't my field of expertise necessarily. But the one thing I take away from it is that, you know, 
because of the nature of our economy now and because of the nature of these kind of new empires, you know, the, the Googles, the Facebook, I mean, Google's moving here very soon. San Francisco becomes a little bit like a harbinger of the future for a lot of other places. So when you see certain politics t- manifest on the ground in San Francisco, you can say with some degree of certainty that other people are going to have to deal with this in a few years' time. And so our experience of seeing that in San Francisco, the positive and negatives of it, do give you some context to move anywhere and be like, well, hey, when Google's moving in here and, uh, you know, funding uh, VR dance floor events, here's one way to approach that, that maybe, you know, it's a good idea to to approach them to start funding real spaces because we've seen where this goes and we've seen what happens when, you know, thousands of employees start taking up all the apartments. There are many different ways to deal with it, but ultimately for me, what's interesting about it, you know, this the city of Berlin and Germany in general has been actually really, really good in terms of implementing policies that somewhat mitigate the influence of these kind of transnational platforms here. So, for example, Airbnb and the potential impact on rent prices in the city, this kind of slumlord Airbnb situation that happens in a place like New York. They've tried to um, address that here. Similarly, Uber, they've put in place efforts to ostensibly kind of nationalize an Uber-like service in my taxi, which I believe is owned by Mercedes-Benz, which might as well be part of the German government. You know, like, so in a way, Berlin, I, th- I think, has an opportunity to really set a gold standard for how to deal with these kind of issues because of the social democratic leaning of, of, of the politics here. And then the second part is a greater question, which is to say, even beyond these kind of local issues, how do we deal with these new power structures? Because in a sense, you know, in music and in art, there's a lot of kind of sex appeal around technology. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of good people working in technology too. You know, I know good people working at Google and Facebook, for example, but we don't really have the language to understand our position in relation to these structures. And in many cases, these structures kind of come to us in our own image, you know? So you can meet someone from Google and they'll be running an initiative that looks really cool. It looks like the record you know, that you bought two or three years ago because they are progressive and, and interesting in many ways. But then there's this kind of other issue of saying, well, if this is the new power structure, how do we redefine what it is to be independent in that context? And so if we come from a, you know, whether you come from a dance music background or a punk music background or whatever, you've inherited an understanding of yourself in relation to this kind of other right? So it used to be the major labels, right? And so people still in a in a weird way, like continue that politics. We still kind of, which is kind of kitsch at this point, because that almost doesn't exist anymore. So the new major structures are Google or YouTube or Apple or Apple Music or Spotify. And we don't really have the language to understand that yet. I don't even know whether most people are on that page yet, which is part of the reason I end up talking about it so much is that I don't think any one person is going to really figure out the parameters for engagement there. But those are the stakes for where we are in it right now. So it's not necessarily so simple as saying Google are terrible. I mean, there's many reasons to say Google are terrible, but it's more to say, well, these are the new conditions. And this is also our position in these conditions. And do we feel good about it? And if we don't, what can we do about it? You know, because so, for example, you know, coming from an interest in like art and technology, these kind of like intermediate festivals. So if I think about the music industry, being a you know a, an employee in a way of a music industry right now overall i think of the live music industry because most people that's how they make their money if they're making any money at all right and so you start looking at festival structures and it's like it used to be a strange thing and a wonderful thing that you would go to festivals and it would be at some art technology hybrid 
where you had you know maybe marginal thinkers from tech coming and talking and then there being some solidarity with the musicians playing and then you'd have some developers there creating new tools so on and so forth my association with that stuff classically is super positive you know like things like Ars Electronica which I was just watching like a Klaus Schultz performance from Ars Electronica like 1980 just incredible incredible marginal stuff that has been super formative in a way you know you see these structures and I'm like well I have a lot of goodwill toward them and then you start noticing I'm like all festivals are kind of turning into this right and it's no longer the kind of minority position of the outsider technologically kind of enabled utopian you know these are people who are affecting the rent these are people who are taking jobs away from people these are people who are driving wages down for like people who have nothing to do with this field these are new powers as much as i love a lot of that stuff and it's seductive i feel some sense of responsibility just because i have this context to be like well wait like it's not all the same actually like this artist doing some you know promotional opportunity for google or whatever or like you know hawking some vr technology that ultimately could be bad for music someone should call it out or at least explain that this is more nuanced than simply oh look i've got this cool gadget on my face you know it's more complicated than that and i think part of the reason maybe i get invited to talk a lot is just cuz that's what i'm interested in i keep pushing on it and i learn more and more about it and i'm starting to come up with maybe some inklings of suggestions as to what we could do better so as not to turn into one, you know, weird dystopian monoculture. <laughs> like, I'll stop talking now. But. Would these inklings be separate to things like Resonate and Saga and stuff like this? So basically, and this extends to, to Holly and I both, I think. We've put ourselves in this position where, you know, primarily we're musicians. So we're on that circuit and that's what we do. And then increasingly our interests are in these topics, if only for the fact that it just seems like there's kind of like negative activity happening in this cultural space and it's something that seems so important increasingly important to us the more that we dig into it yeah and you do see a bunch of different opportunities existing i mean it's like so with saga for example which you know it t- usually takes me 10 minutes to explain it even though it's very simple just this idea of saying you know what would it mean if we were to all put our energy into a publishing platform that gave us control rather than the kind of syndicators of content or of material you know what would that mean like what would it mean if if all of a sudden we had the power to speak to or or disavow advertising on a website, what would that mean to the to the predominantly ad-dominated web structure? Which is very interesting. This week I'm I'm getting interview requests from all all kind of angles about you know the Guardian pulling their business from uh from Google, mm. particularly over this issue of their their uh, material being placed next to extremist content online. And I'm like, well, yeah, should have gotten Saga. Well, yeah, and, and to be fair, Saga's in, in no state for, for The Guardian to pick up and do it, but the logic's there, and it works. And that's, so that's really, like, I think for both Holly and I, we're at this point where it's, like, you know, had the huge privilege of being invited to talk about stuff, and then the next step, really, is to start building stuff. And in the worst case, at least for me, with Saga, you know, it's not perfect yet, and, you know, I'm trying to, to raise a small amount of grant money right now to make it better. But for my own conscience, I, I like the fact that when I go into a room and talk about this stuff, I can say, look, I built something that in my mind could work better. So I might not have you know, the money or the time or the skills in many cases to make this the most powerful thing in the world. But I can point to it and I can say, look, it could work better because I proved it. Look, look at this. So Resonate, who I advise and, you know, I, I can't take really any credit for Resonate. It's it's Peter Harris's project and he really works hard on that project. Um, it's a cooperative streaming platform. Exactly. So Resonate is an example of one of the inklings that I think is really optimistic, which is this concept of the platform cooperative. 
the idea of the platform cooperative really is just to say you have platforms that fulfill a function, some kind of social function. In many cases, like something like Uber, it's kind of a bit of a black box, right? You have a couple of people raise a lot of money to make this thing that undoubtedly worked well. As a user, you're kind of beholden to them. They set prices. They they can do what they like, really. Um, if you work for them, you really feel the brunt of that because you really are under their thumb. So the platform co-op concept is basically saying, well, you know, the tech exists. We know how it works. We could build something similar and we could all own it. And then we could all have a stake in saying how much people get paid or how much we pay. Or there's a wonderful book, and I always forget the woman's name, which is terrible, called The Entrepreneurial State, which goes to talk about how so many of these dominant, you know, your Apples, your Googles, your Facebook, the technologies themselves are built on technologies that were in fact developed by state research. So the idea that, you know, a few people opportunistically and very cannily took this research and compiled it in new ways and found business models around it, all that goes to say is that we could do the same thing and just not be exploitative about it, you know. And so that's the platform idea. And with Resonate, Peter is building and his team are building a competitive streaming service, competitive to Spotify in the sense that it will ultimately pay more to the artists and even share dividends to the users. And so the artists and the users will collectively own this entity, which means that they can then choose what features to add. And the other exciting thing on as well is that it's, um, it's blockchain compliant. So it's built on top of the blockchain, which means that all kind of new interesting things can happen that maybe can't happen with Spotify. Or even if they could happen with Spotify, they most likely wouldn't because you have no say in it. And basically only the biggest stakeholders, the biggest artists, the biggest labels really have a say when it comes to negotiating rates or anything with Spotify. Again, going back to this idea of independence, you know, it's, again, I know good people at Spotify. It's it's hard to to be a polemic about this stuff because ultimately they're like, oh, well, they're just trying to, and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm sure some of them have the best of intentions. But it does feel a bit weird you know, you're coming from like an independent musical background and you're like, I'll just pick a name. This Arca album, that's a very different thing to that Katy Perry album. It's very, very different. Why does it look the same? Why is that track put next to that one? And and, and there's a period of time maybe where I don't think people gave them the benefit of the doubt or gave these services the benefit of the doubt. I think people literally surrendered because the industry is in a state of peril, not knowing where the money's going to come from. There's money being invested in these major platforms and people are just like, oh, fuck it, yeah, okay. Like, you know, fine, I'll play with YouTube, I'll play with Spotify, whatever. And then, but over time you look at it and I'm like, has it really changed that much? Has it really, you know, helped the little guy? Has Is your label really doing that much better? Maybe you're making do, but tomorrow if they change their terms, would you be out of business? Probably. So with there being obvious benefits to some of the, the infrastructure that's been put in place through these private companies... I just think we can do better. I just, I really think we can do better. And we, in the musical community at least, have this wonderful legacy of DIY independent music that has proven that we can do better. The challenge with that, though, is that you do need to start approaching topics like collectivization, which we're not really used to thinking about. You know, like DIY labels were entrepreneurial labels, but they got to be entrepreneurial labels because they were making money. I mean, I, I can't speculate about individual releases or whatever, but, you know, the first Warp release, for example, the LFO single sold, what was it? it was like 170,000 copies. That's a lot of money, you know, to be able to make decisions that follow your ideology, that benefit others, right? Now we have a scenario where you're not selling something. Some people are making royalties. You get arguments, you know, oh, well, I got an ad. It's like, well, you didn't get into music to make an ad, did you? Like, and where does that money go? Does it get reinvested? Does it get... Not necessarily, you know, so everyone's kind of like 
riding this by the skin of their teeth. And I'm like, ultimately, I don't know if this scenario is better than maybe taking a leap of faith, approaching ideas like collectivization on aggregate, you know, so identifying independent actors throughout this ecosystem and trying to build a better model. Because the one thing we do have is we have goodwill. We have a track record of successfully doing this stuff because this concept didn't exist before musicians tried doing it. You know, like the independent music is like a case study for other industries of a successful parallel alternative industry. Yeah, so it, it just seems it seems worth a punt. The challenge being that, you know, there's a lot at stake for people. There's people in their 30s and 40s. I'm in my 30s now. You know, who've built a living on top of this and they have kids and you know it gets really hairy when you start saying take apart and stuff but i look at the other alternative of just you know kind of ceding control ceding your destiny basically to these centralized companies that ultimately are there for the beatles catalog or whatever it might be and i'm like as with like using facebook or anything like this i don't necessarily judge people who don't want to take that leap because everyone has their own situation but in the abstract there's a big leap to take, you know, examples like Resonate, examples like Saga. I can think of many other cool initiatives in my mind are, you know, warrant maybe more attention, just more attention and more goodwill than they end up getting. You know, it, those are the new kind of borders of independence to me. You know, it's not uploading something on iTunes that has a font that looks like an independent record from the 90s. You know, that's not independent. It's independent kitsch, but it's not actual independence. There's an actual battle happening now. It's just not talked about very much. This makes me think back to an article you wrote in 2013, I think it was. feels like yesterday. But um, it was talking about this, uh, like, inertia and silence in independent music circles regarding financial inequality between artists and bias against digital music journalist complicity and maintaining these structures and things like this there's a point in it which still rings true (laughs) i mean of course a lot of it does but in particular i was drawn to this um talking about legacy labels and the poaching of smaller artists and that like a small indie is essentially like an r&d firm for like uh one of these legacy labels do you think this has become like even more marked in the four years between that article coming out and now like not to name names but it's becoming increasingly obvious it's funny. I mean, it's funny you bring that article up because that's one that I've deliberately kind of removed from the internet, but I haven't. It's on my website and it's not linked there. You'd be surprised at how many hits that article gets. And that's part of the reason I kind of hide it a little bit because I didn't publish it through anywhere. I just posted it to my site. It's like many, many, many hits. It's a very interesting case study. Almost to prove the fact that like no one wants to have this conversation. It's like, you know, it, it's this, it, it feels like this kind of like old VHS tape that gets passed around to high school or something. It's like, you know, and it is like sufficiently conspiratorial. Here's the thing, like Holly and I release music through a legacy label and I'm so grateful for that. They're wonderful. I really despair at thinking what would happen if, you know, 480 warp, if they weren't around because they're not, you know, I don't, I don't think that they're kind of living large um, in current situations and they really do, maintain some kind of a a standard of curation and and discourse amongst the culture that I would despair if that would disappear. There is this other problem, which is we somehow have maintained the mythology that, you know, a scrappy kid from nowhere can put a record out with their last, you know, $500 and take over the music industry, you know, and... Uh, in the most anomalous of cases, yes, that, that can happen. 
the more you poke at it, and I've been around this a lot, there's always another hustle. There's always another hustle. It might be that the person starting the label has certain access that other people don't have, whether that be financial or social or whatever it might be. It, it generally tends to cluster around media centers. You know, if, if a scrappy kid in New York who wears the right clothes does something, it means more than if a scrappy kid in Manchester wears the right clothes and does something. It just does. That's, that's like a, a harsh reality. And it, it's also serves another function. But yeah, but in terms of like poaching, I feel like it's such a transparent part of of how music works that I almost don't it almost feels like sensationalist to refer to it as poaching to me it, it's like the challenge is really that in an ecosystem where people aren't paying for stuff if you sign someone or work with a label or start your own operation ultimately at some point you have to make a decision if there's enough if you're good and there's enough interest in what you're doing it ends up making sense to go with an infrastructure that can support you the sad thing for me is not necessarily that those infrastructures exist, but that the ability for someone who's not part of that legacy system to create their own legacy system is really severely hampered by the current situation. And a lot of that is down to personal responsibility of not paying for things. You know, it's even bigger than that, you know. And again, this comes down to like the sense of responsibility is like, yes, like believe it or not, in a system where people don't pay for things, Ultimately, the ones that benefit the most are the ones who are socially mobile enough to get by without that money that doesn't exist anymore. Like, big surprise! You know, it's like, is it any wonder, like, again, to go back to the, the OG kind of indie labels, there was a period of time where people paid for things. People on an independent side of things made more money than you would than they would let on even and had the ability to, to create these directions, you know, create these kind of ripples through culture that were very idiosyncratic and very ideological. And it's like, well, I don't, you know, now you, it's an entirely different time, obviously, because now you have the ability, you can amass a Facebook following or whatever it might be, but the ability to convert that into tangible money still hasn't been solved, you know, until that point comes, it's going to happen. But, but ultimately, you know, I look at it, for example, I get all the time, smart people who have started a label and at some point we came across that article or whatever, or like follow me on Twitter and connote that I'm down to chat, which I generally am, you know, and they write me with these questions. And I'm like, well, honestly, you have so much power, but everyone's individuated. This is kind of like the kind of like div divided and conquered condition of kind of stra stratified internet culture or whatever is like, you have a lot of power. You're in London or wherever it is. People care about what you're doing. You are cultivating a sound that, you know, is getting the vultures kind of hanging by yourself. You're going to be eaten alive. You really are. But together... You know, like I fantasize, I could I could name like 20 small labels now if they were to figure out a means to collaborate together and say, hey, okay, we're only going to exclusively release our material through this paid for subscription platform. And we're going to release a record a week and it's going to come from XYZ. I don't know if they'll, if everyone involved with that is going to be making a middle class living from, from doing it, but that's a start. And it's a way of like understanding your power and and understanding your options because right now we've seen this stuff long enough to understand that the options don't look particularly good you know I, I tried not to be super judgmental and there's also a lot of people for example who are socially mobile who came into wealth or whatever who do so much to prop up this industry you know artificially in a way you know w without naming names there, there's so many 
operations or scenes or whatever where i'm like if it weren't for that it's kind of like the art world i mean that's what we've turned into in a way is like it's kind of like the art world like concepts like sand art exist really because there's like five rich people in the world who decided that it should keep being a thing and that's i've not seen any argument to suggest it's anything but that it's the same curator it's the same investor and there's certain scenes in music that kind of the same and great because no one else is paying for it so wonderful i'm glad it exists you know but in terms of long-term sustainability what annoys me though is when because certain things are inflated and also what many people have an incentive you know in the journalistic sphere for example journalistic publications are run by ad money it's no mystery there's no conspiracy there but there's not really an incentive for a journalist to say hey this isn't working because there's this new release, buy this, buy this record, buy that. There's not really an incentive, which everybody knows, because everyone here maybe wants to have a kid one day. Everybody here is in a position where you're like, God, is this going to be here in like 10 years' time? Everyone is in that position. If you're not, then you're, you're dealing with a different reality to me. Everyone is having that conversation. So the fact that we can't really talk about that, and in talking about it, identify other allies who are concerned about a thing, and then maybe come together to build a solution that might work out, that's what scares me. It's not about individuals. It's about the fact that there is a culture of silence around this. And there's, it's like the last issue. It was five years ago whenever I wrote that thing. It's still the last issue. Mm. And ultimately what you end up seeing is because, you know, there's certain things that are privileged by this new economy, right? So DJ culture. I don't know anything about DJ culture. I won't. I know for, I have friends who DJ and they're, they're great at it and it's fun to watch them DJ or whatever. There's a reason why that's maybe privileged over other things you know it's this it's this process of i mean i was joking on twitter it's kind of like the ultimate silicon valley ideology it's like pure like tim berners lee of like make a career rearranging the work of others in a seamless it's like perfect ux design you know like and i'm like cool that's great there's a great history of it and it means a lot to a lot of people that's wonderful but like there's a reason that can thrive where other things kind of die but then there, there comes the question of saying well where are the records that you're all going to play in 10 years, if the, people who, if the people whose music makes up the content for this practice can't get by. And same with, it's the same with the art and technology thing. You know, it would be far easier for Holly and I, for example, to be like jumping on any tech company to like you know, promote their MIDI control or whatever. There's money out there for that stuff. We're not interested in that. Like there's very few companies that would meet a criteria that we would feel good about doing something like that so what you end up doing is you end up getting these representations of music and technology that are ostensibly just promotional material for you know again i think we can do better there's a legacy and there's smart interesting people who've sacrificed a lot to pursue this as a lifestyle whether they be you know in iowa or whether they move to berlin or whatever like really smart people looking to pursue this and like we're not really flexing those muscles we're not you know, we're, we're in this kind of bind and we're not masters of our destiny in that sense. Um, and I think that's a, a shame. But yeah, it's still a problem. Probably more of a problem than it was five years ago. <laughs> it's interesting um, thinking specifically about the role that websites with music writing on them play in these sorts of things. It's almost like similar to legacy labels, how they like consolidate things together and by that way kind of define the conversation somewhat and since 2013 and even before that blogs where there was sort of this space to like you know say these negative well not they're not necessarily negative points but they're critical exactly yeah but they've kind of been absorbed by social media and stuff like that where do you see these conversations taking place then in terms of online online physically 
Well, one of the things we've been doing, so we've been in Berlin working on the new album and we haven't done enough of it, but we've been trying to really emphasize in-person meetings. I think this is also on a personal tip, like post-Brexit, Trump, I, I got such social media fatigue of just just outright mistrust of what I was reading of like I've lots of wonderful friends and had wonderful conversations but I'm like this isn't working you know this isn't work I need to kind of recalibrate and so we've been definitely trying to emphasize not in like a kind of reactionary screw technology kind of way but just try and reassess our, our life balance of like living in this kind of alienated nether space of likes and whatever it just it, it feels kind of off you know, when you've eaten food that's a bit bad and you're like, you think about it and it turns your stomach a little bit. I kind of have this attitude toward a lot of social media now. It feels like manipulation engine or it incentivizes the wrong thing. So in general, we've been talking more about just congregation with people, you know, not in a like liturgical way, but just, you know, so we've been having meetings. For example, one thing that we're trying to start with a group of people is as a means of getting people off Facebook, which I think. I don't have much time for Facebook anymore, trying to create an alternate events platform. Because when I, I have this experience, Holly's been on Facebook forever because she's smart. I've been on Facebook like intermittently and I, I just don't really use it. But the events always drag me back because ultimately, you know, this culture that I believe in is kind of fomented by in-person events and I need to know where they are. Even if you know we're in a fortunate position where a lot of people do tell us about stuff, you still have to find out about it somewhere. It's like, and so we're like, oh well, you know, maybe if we were to create a very simple platform that would compete with the Facebook events that people would post to, that could help people, kind of like a methadone program, off the the dopamine dealer of Facebook, you know. Which again, like Saga, or like resonate this idea of like protesting platforms with platforms, alternative platforms. So that's one thing is like attempting to gather people, and you find that people are more than down for a chat. You know, because this is the other thing about electronic music generally, or like you know, everything being dominated by club music. The one thing that doesn't really happen there is like, it's not like the most conversational space, you know? So like finding some balance between that where you can just actually chat and like speak to- Or it's people. the same conversations that have been had for the past like 20 years yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't know about that, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of like attempting to congregate, which obviously is also a you know, a politic, because once you start thinking about congregating, you're like, oh, fuck, there's nowhere to congregate. Because you live in this abstracted kind of immaterial universe, and you can have as much space as that as you like, because it's free, you know. So you start finding that there aren't that many places to congregate, and that we really have to take seriously or or demand those spaces or create those spaces and be pragmatic or kind of improvise in that way. Um, The other side, online, I mean, it would be an opportunity for me to hawk, like, decentralized alternatives to social media or whatever those things exist out there but the one thing about facebook for me that i do dislike a little bit is i feel like the filter bubble thing is very real in terms of having conversations and bringing issues up there's a sense of satisfaction that comes through publishing on facebook that suggests that you've actually accomplished something you know so you can i used to do this like when i first got a facebook account i would like rant about something and then you get like 100 people like jumping in and it was like oh yeah job done and you're like oh no actually it's not job done because that kid in Poland who could have used the context of the discussion that we just had can't read this because it's not publicly accessible. And there's benefits for that in some cases, some information sensitive. But that's one thing I do miss about blogs or this these kind of discussion forums is like the more it filters into Facebook, which is basically like closed conversation, Twitter, which is really short, you know, and then these things like weird approximations, like centralized services, like Medium or whatever, where it's like, 
it's not really a place for like community discussion. It's more kind of like it's a careerist kind of thing. You know, it's like it's a means of like putting your article on there and then becoming a thought leader on whatever issue. You know, it's fine, but it's just like not functional about that. So I don't know. Email works. Again, the email it does in a sense suggest that that you need to know somebody. I mean, the one thing I will say, like, I'm a big fan, for example, of Douglas Rushkoff, who writes great books and is a really smart person, and he runs a newsletter. It's great. Anyone can sign up, and then you can have a discussion. He's super open about it. Similarly, Warren Ellis, who I'm talking with in a couple of days for a warp panel, runs a really good newsletter. It's an old technology, but it's like, yeah, if you want to hear what's up, everyone has an email. You know, more discussions good, and and actually meeting with people in in place can just I've just found it very very therapeutic in the past year or so. Uh. Another one of these like titillating but insubstantial things about you on the internet is like working with Bill Coolius at, at Pan. Yeah. <laughs> is that something that, that you can offer some more more concrete substance to? Well, basically, I've known Bill for a long time. We're very good friends. He's one of my closest friends. I love Bill. He's another person that he's done such a solid, you know, to, to the culture, I think, in the sense that he's, when he started that label, it really contributed something to the conversation that hasn't happened. And it's kind of reinvented itself a few times in that process in a way that I think is really positive. And he, you know, he's a really special supporter of people. There's so many people affiliated with Pan who I remember as, you know, people on the margins who didn't necessarily have like a coherent career path or whatever. And Bill's been really instrumental in, in helping them to to pull things together because he sees that in people. And he's, he's an expert curator of people, basically. So I, I would say that because he, for years, had invited me to do a release on Pan. Because the one thing that doesn't fall in my bio is actually I've been a musician longer than I've done anything. So I can actually make music and do often. But yeah, so I've been working on a bunch of stuff and, and I did a talk for Bill at a festival in New York that ended up becoming, was kind of like made the patch that we then used on the Holly record and this kind of stuff. And in fact, that talk almost pretty much led to me thinking about Saga. It was one of these special things for me personally. So anyway, so I've been chatting to Bill forever about releasing something and then for whatever reason it didn't come together because you know, I was working and then the Holly stuff was kind of kicking off and we were traveling a lot with that and then I was spending a lot of time with Holly worrying about that next move stuff and really wanted to maybe get more into the realm of making software or making those kind of gestures if only for the fact that you know again I'm in a special position in a sense because on a musical tip like I'm playing shows all the time I get to contribute to music a lot and get to see the benefits of that in some ways. But like when it came to the software stuff, it was really something where I'm like, there's nobody else doing this. I'm like, if I were to make like a strange record with this weird granular patch that I made, like I'm sure it would be fine and maybe some people would enjoy it or whatever. But like with Saga and these other projects, I'm like, no, this is like a special thing. For me personally, I'm like, I want to see that in the world. And so for whatever reason, we just haven't done it. We, we might do it in future. I've got some ideas, whatever. But yeah, so anyway, so through that, I just basically started yeah, helping out with the label. And there was a period of time, I guess for about 18 months or so, where we were co-running it in different ways. And a lot of that's just very boring stuff. You know, like, I'm, yeah, it's just very boring logistical stuff of like, be good to do this. Or, you know, this person's interesting. Or what if there was a sub-label made with this kind of stuff? So little ideas, you know. And we didn't we didn't get to do everything we were thinking about at the time. And it's probably, probably a good thing. But I'm still in touch with Bill a lot. And we run ideas past each other all the time, you know. I consider it more like family in that sense. It was never like a a job job. It was just, you know, a period of time where 
Pam was growing and, and Bill could use a hand. And so I was there for that. It's interesting, though, that you're saying that you're foregrounding your work with software over music. And I guess the that makes me think that you consider of it as, as having some like greater utility than than releasing a record, right? No, the thing is, again, it's not about judgment. It's like it's about individual choice, right? So from my personal perspective, when I look, particularly around that time, when I first started talking to Bill about doing a record, this was like 2012 or something. And I'm looking at the field and I'm looking at my own, and like there's such an abundance of music at this point that unless, for my personal just uh, incentive, it's like unless I feel like what I'm going to do is really going to make a mark, then there's other interesting things to think about, you know? And so, for example, working with Holly, Holly's a special person and her records are very idiosyncratic and they've increasingly become these kind of like big fucking projects of like collaborations and weird things we make in space and then we make weird software and all this kind of shit. I'm like, being involved in that is very satisfying because it's not just about making tracks. And because ultimately there's people out there who are better at making tracks. It's not about that. And so that kind of collective approach that Holly's practice has become is very satisfying for me. And I believe it's the right thing to do in the context of her practice. But for me, I look at it and I'm like, well, okay, well, there's that there. You know, music is limited in ways that in some cases are wonderful. Like, you know, functional dance music, for example, is a wonderful thing. I love that it exists. I don't personally want to spend my time thinking about making it. You know, there's tons of people out there who are doing that and I'm happy they are. But for me, you know, there's a particular approach and it's like, it just got to this point. I, I don't play software above it. I just believe in kind of a diversity of outcomes. And when I look at, you know, the weird abstract music space or whatever, like I personally don't think anyone's going to benefit that much more if I were to sit down and make this strange record that listen, they listen to for 40 minutes and then it has a cool font on it or whatever, you know, that's just me. Cause like, I don't, and I'm like, if I were to do that, most of the time I, what I want to be doing is communicating these maybe less abstract, what in some ways more abstract things of like this kind of chaos magic approach of being like, what if we made this software and then the world changed in accordance with like, that's the reason I wanted to get involved in music anyway is like manifesting magic or something like this. And it's like, well, software gives you the ability to do that. It's equally hard. It's hard in different ways. So yeah, so I just kind of made that call, but I might, I might change that in future. It's just, I don't, for some reason, I don't feel like, I feel like I'm contributing a lot more in this capacity. Your music's code-based then? Not necessarily. It's mostly like process-based. So like, for example, all the internet weird sampling stuff, there wasn't really code involved in putting that patch together or that system together. You know, it's a lot of Macs. It's like not, it's like visual programming stuff. But like, again, like there's people out there who do that. There's like people who build insane systems for, you know, sound generation and procedural, whatever. I, I, not my bag. It's just not, it's not what I do. Like a lot of what I'll do is set up a process that will have an interesting outcome. So like, for example, I mean, Holly and I used to have a band called Body, Body Tags. So like the HTML, it's cheesy now, but at the time it felt fresh somehow. <laughs> but you know, for example, we would build patches. This is before her solo record came out. We, we played a bunch of shows with this, but we would build patches to basically be sampling the internet in real time. So really difficult because many times we're like running the internet on our phones or trying to find something. But the whole idea is like, how can you establish a process to have these kind of like indeterminate feeds of audio come through 
and then structure them in a way that's interesting. You know, that then became the like sampling the internet thing because I was at work all the time and I'm like, okay, I want to make records while I'm at work somehow. So how do I build a process that like everything I do at work somehow contributes to this composition? So stuff like that. And it's like on the newer record, I've built some stuff and it's it's kind of like it's even more kind of psychedelic, you know, but it's kind of like it's process driven stuff that like the end goal could be conformed into like a song structure or something like that. And ultimately, that's the most interesting thing about working with Holly, ultimately, is because, like, particularly for the albums, there is this expectation there that, like, it takes some form eventually, and that's a huge, really cool challenge. But, you know, for the stuff I, I do on the side, I, I don't place that expectation there. It's just like, okay, well, here's a strange concept. Like, will it sound different? Occasionally it does. And then you're, like, really satisfied because you're like, okay, well, turns out this weird nugget of an inkling, like, produces sound or a style or dynamics that don't sound like you could just make it jamming on a sampler or something. Mm. We also make life really, really hard for ourselves. And this, I think, encompasses Holly and I. That's our practice, is like, ultimately there are outcomes that like, you make an album, you might do an art thing, or there's a piece of software, but like, everything is process-based. It's like, so there's a reason why the sound comes to you in a certain way. And it's more expensive, it's more time-consuming, it's like more anxiety running because you you know every time there's a new project is like let's try and make some new tools or, or whatever but ultimately that's kind of our reason for being there because you know if the criteria was just making the best tracks whatever then personally i think there's people who are better at that it's just not what we are about you know it's it's process so i guess if people hadn't hadn't heard of matt dryhurst they probably would have seen you writing things like uh, never getting booked again I, on a big screen while you're playing with Holly and Colin Self, of course. It was interesting seeing um, personal yet public information of people projected on a wall at Berghain and things like that. But, um, you obviously ended up with quite a international platform to be doing these shows. What were the, like, the scope of reactions like to this performance tactic you were, you were using? It's funny, I'm a really big fan of this comedian, Stuart Lee. Honestly, it's kind of an archetype of person who's into Stuart Lee, and Holly reminds me of that all the time. It's like, yeah, you're like a college-educated white dude who's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like Chris Morris, Stuart Lee. It's like, yeah, guilty. Like it's not my fault. <laughs> exactly, it's true. It's, it's, designed, it's probably designed for me, but I do think he's great. I like jump on any chance to listen to like a podcast interview with him because I'm like a total fanboy. And he talks very much about like, you know, because Stuart Lee, the comedian, is a human being and then there's a character which is this very arch kind of like snide know-it-all person who goes in and pushes buttons and of course they're named the same thing so it's very confusing but it's very much an act it's very much kind of an experiment to see how people will act in certain conditions and a lot of the you know the data mining stuff that i've done or the live text or whatever has very much been that where it's like 70 percent of me in there for sure and then there's 30 percent of like kind of just trying to push buttons or like trying to see how people react so in many cases the reaction is always positive i've not had a single person well there was one incident that i actually can't talk about because someone very famous got very upset <laughs> over something <laughs> um which which i still feel awful about but like in every other case it's been like super chill everyone's super into it and 70 percent of me is really stoked about that and the 30 percent of me is like oh you failed like you failed in the experiment because actually what I was trying to do was take information about you and expose it publicly 
in order to make you feel uneasy. You should have felt uneasy about that. And that hasn't happened, really. So so there's this case where it goes down really well. In another case, because, you know, and I've, I've, I've read, I remember we had a review one time from some publication who were like really honest for like being like populist and twee for like calling out people's names and then saying some some like truism in relation to a question they'd ask or something like that on the walls and like and I'm like you're right but you're not getting it the point is is that when you act in that populist manner people go with whatever you're saying and this is a study in that so generally, if you talk to me or Holly or anyone, we're, we're like very far from being populists in most cases, even though there's some benefits to it or whatever. But like, but in those situations where you're like, okay, we're playing at like Primavera at like 1am and there's like a lot of people there, you say something to like win over an audience at that point in time with some aspect of personal information. And generally they just, they just bite it. And like, you know, we're not, it's not a joke on the audience from my perspective, but it's just an interesting moment where you're like, wow, like that's powerful. Like if we were like representing something else, that could be really problematic. You know, like at what point does this use of information projected back to people create a situation of awareness in them where they're like, wait a second, this is kind of weird. This is kind of wrong. And I haven't yet reached that point. So it's very interesting. And most of the time it's a laugh and most of the time it's like totally good natured. And as I say, none of it's like taking the piss out of people, but it definitely does. It definitely illustrates something where it's very interesting. And of course the like that meme thing was like a total wet dream for me. Cause I was like, Oh wow. Like, I mean, I started doing the like data performance stuff for like five people in San Francisco in like 2011. And like to get to the point where like, you know, people like, a picture that somebody took of the text was having its own life online as a meme and like nobody knows where it came from or whatever. That was like the perfect, almost at that point I actually wanted to stop doing it. So I was like, that's great. Like that's it. That's all it needed to do was it needed to prove that like, and in that Reddit thread, there's like someone being like, oh yeah, above and beyond do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. And I didn't realize that that was awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, apparently they've been doing it for a really long time and that's really cool. I mean, the other side too is it fulfills another function, which is, you know, with Holly and I, I talked earlier about this like seamless electronic user experience thing of like, you know, you're like, you're listening to the latest mix on your iPhone and while you're browsing Facebook and then you go to a new mix and then you get to the festival and you open up the new app and you show your pass and then the beat seamlessly continues for like three days in the festival and then you go, a lot of that's wonderful, but, but we've been trying to like really own the fact that we're a live band. Like, we'll play festivals, for example, and, you know, without naming names, like, there was a festival we played last year where in three days, the only two human voices were Holly and Lee Scratch Perry, who's like 90 or something now. And I'm like, whoa, I like a lot of the music here, but what's going on? You know, like, are voices inconvenient? Is this like, are these things being kind of like filtered out? of an experience and at which point what are we losing there so with the typing and when i saw that above and beyond be doing that i'm like i totally get why you would do that because it's communicating i'm not one of these puritans who's like if you're using i mean we're very publicly pro laptop we don't expect you to buy expensive gear to be real live people or whatever but there does get to be a problem where there's just no interruptions to an experience like most of our practice is about agency and about being there with people and communicating to people that we're thinking and we're doing stuff. And so the text is a really easy way to do that of being like, yeah, like it's really cool to be able to like 
also for nerves and stuff, just communicate to people like, oh, hey, like, yeah. So you've mentioned multiple times that you're working on a new record mm -hmm. together. What state is that in? Is it something that can be commented on at this stage? Yeah. I mean, I can't say too much, but it's, um, it's definitely coming together. It's, yeah, without saying too much, it's kind of like, again, as I said, we make stuff difficult for ourselves in that every project is a discrete project. And I think after Platform, you know, both of us were like super flattered and inspired by how far that went and how much time people gave it, you know, because I think it it is a difficult record and it is an imperfect record, but, and there's a lot of stuff in there, you know, almost too much stuff for some people, I think, understandably. It's been a wonderful thing touring that. And it also got to this point where we're like, this is done now, you know? And so a lot of the last year has been trying to logistically figure that out, make new projects, you know, figure out new collaborators and just ideas. I still think Platform was the right gesture for when it came out. I think that I felt like we did a good job on Platform and I feel like it would be really it's tempting to just continue that and be like, oh, cool, let's, like, smash some stuff together and then, like, Holly will, like, chop up her voice and, like, make it go round in a circle and, like, I'm like, well, the, you know, th there's there's more things in the world. There's more stuff to do. And so it's been a laborious process, but it's it's coming together now. Like, Holly was playing me some stuff this is like, a week and a half ago, and it was the first time where I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, that we made the right call. Like, it's going in a good direction. Yeah. But it's tricky because, you know, there's, there is this temptation to just be constantly releasing, like constantly trying to put yourself in the press. And like, I think for this one, it's just very important and particularly important to Holly. It's like, it's just get it right so that when it comes out, it's good. Because ultimately that's the thing that matters, you know? And a lot of platform was like, we were both learning on the job and like, oh sh shit, like there's got to be a live show and oh, let's do this. And then like Colin came on board and like, did an incredible job helping us with the live show and, and and for this one it's just like no like what would be the best album that we could make now and what would that represent and what would that look like and how would that be performed and yeah so it's coming together i'm a nervous wreck about it like because it's it's we just like every decision we've made is like logistically anti like counterintuitive but i'm hoping like if the art is strong enough then i'm hoping that that that's really charming in fact and like timely but we really yeah we really are making life super difficult for ourselves i know sorry i'm being very vague i'm being very vague oh. <laughs> no holly will kill me if i like give away stuff but... it's called x yeah, yeah, yeah.